born from the clouds, a strange and lovely sound. I hear it in the thunder and the rain. It's ringing in the sky like cannons in the night. The music of the universe plays. Singing, you are holy, great and mighty, the moon and the stars. Why don't you uh, get up on your feet if you're not already there and uh, find somebody? Tell them good morning. Bring your time, bring your shame, bring your guilt, bring your pain. Don't you know that's not your pain? You will always be much more to me. Every day I wrestle with the voices that keep telling me I'm not right. That's all right. Cause I hear a voice and I'm not going to take
just because you're getting older. <laughs> just kidding. Good morning, everybody. I hope you're uh, enjoying this beautiful weather. Um, it is uh, that time of the year where you can go outside and, and do all the yard work so that when it gets too hot, you can look at it from the air conditioned inside. Well, I hope, I hope you're enjoying this beautiful spring because it, it, has, it has been gorgeous. Would you take your worship guides and open them up? I want to highlight some things. If you're visiting with us this morning or you're watching by way of Internet, we are awfully glad to have you with us this morning as we continue our study of James. We've been in James for four and a half years, and uh, we're in chapter two this week, so we're really moving along. I, I'm kidding. It's, it's only been one year. Um, but we're going to be in James two this morning, so if you're uh, watching on the internet or you're new with us, uh, grab your Bibles and put your finger there. We'll get there in a little, bit, uh, a little while, and uh, we're going to have a great time in the Word this morning. But you will definitely want to be in the Word to check me and make sure that I'm not making this stuff up. So, uh, so we encourage you to do that. Um, uh, Carpenter's Way family, we would encourage you to check these things out. Lots of stuff going on. We've got uh, mops uh, coming up tomorrow. We've got TNT uh, this Thursday. Uh, also, uh, we have a Mother's Day Out yard sale next weekend. 
Um, and preteen camp is coming up, so please take some time to read through this. You can call the office or email us if you have any questions, but we would love, uh, love, love to answer any questions that you have about upcoming events and activities as they are there to build relationships as well as uh, grow closer to the Lord. So we would encourage you to be involved in them. I do want to highlight a couple of inserts. The first one is the Mosaic Center. Um, we put in every couple of weeks, we put in an insert about a different missionary that we support uh, through your giving. Uh, one of those organizations is the Mosaic Center, which is a phenomenal uh, ministry in this community. We're blessed to have them. Uh, they take women in crisis situations where they are uh, in needing of work and have no training, and uh, they train them while also paralleling, also presenting the gospel and discipling, and, and uh, it, is a, it is a wonderfully effective ministry. Uh, we have many people from Carpenter's Way involved in leading it um, or involved in the ministry there. Uh, Donna Bussler is their executive director and is part of our church, has been on staff here before, and we are very proud to, um, to uh, connect with them, col collaborate, encourage them, and encourage you as you serve there. Um, I, I want to take this opportunity to remind you that, that when we give Carpenter's Way folks, this is what we give to. It's not just for the light bills. It's not just for the staff, but uh, it goes across the globe. We're involved with, um, you know, somewhere between 10 and 15,000 missionaries globally through the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. There's about uh, 12 or 13 missionaries and organizations that we as a church have decided to partner with, one of those being the Mosaic Center. The reason we put these in here, though, is so that you can set them on their table and, and spend this week praying for them. Um, you know, um, they make it look easy, or, or not, but they make it look easy, um, and it's a lot more than taking money in and helping people. There's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the, the scenes in the background, from ministering to churches that support them to answering questions. And I just want to remind you, the reason, the reason why uh, they have leadership is so that the administrative stuff is hidden in the background so the ministry can be in front. And I encourage you to pray for them as they, as they deal with political stuff and, and, and things that Satan uses to distract and, and all that stuff. So please be in prayer for the Mosaic Center, and, uh, and that's why that's there. Uh, the other thing is I want to mention the men's hangout insert. Um, every year around this time of the year, we do a, a, a big men's event where we basically go to uh, Stephen uh, uh, Nancy Hicks' um, lake house and hang out for the afternoon, and we eat really good food, and we play games, and some guys bring um, shotguns, and we shoot skeet, and uh, this year we have about 250 cans of old, outdated Coke that has no taste, but it is bubbly. And if you shake up a Coke can and you throw it in the air and shoot it... <laughs> You've never done that? I know. You guys are throwing sticks of dynamite. You are Texans after all. And why a shotgun? Just use a pistol. It's not a big deal. But anyway, that's what we do. A couple things. There's information on there. I am going to ask that this year we only bring shotguns. Uh, and uh, if, if you don't want to shoot, there's plenty of other stuff going on. Uh, and, and we would love to have you. But the information is in there. Um, Jeff Reich is going to be bringing our food again this year, and it's always very, very good. But take, a, take that. Look at it. Um, I, I do want to say that uh, it takes, in a church this size, it takes a little bit of um, proactive behavior on your, on your part to build relationships for both men and women. And uh, relationships are what really, why God birthed the church so we can get to know each other, encourage each other, and spur each other on to love and good deeds. And I want to talk to that guy for just a second who says, I don't need that. That may be true, but somebody else does, and this is about serving others. So uh, I just want to say that uh, it's, it's a ministry, even if you don't like shotguns and even if you don't like Jeff Reich's cooking. Um, but uh, but, but I, just, I just really want to encourage you to be involved because um, church is not your wife's thing. It's your thing. Uh, if you're a child of God, and I just want to encourage you to be involved, get to know people, and uh, um, this, this is a great way to do it. It's an awful lot of fun. So um, if you have any questions on this or you can't afford the 10 bucks, we just want you there. 
Uh, so let us know, and, and we'll be glad to, to take care of what needs to be taken care of. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time for our offering. Um, and uh, as they do, I want to share what I always do. Uh, this, is, uh, this part of the service is for those who attend here regularly. If you're visiting with us, um, we ask you not to give. Uh, we don't want you distracted by money. The budget of Carpenter's Way Church is a commitment we make as people who attend here regularly and those who are members of the church to take care of our missionaries, our facility, our children, uh, and all that stuff, and the, and the ministries we've got. and the uh, Anyway, I've talked about that. So we just don't want you distracted by money. We're glad you're here. And what we want you to walk away with is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or having been encouraged in your relationship with Christ. So thank you, and let me, let me pray. Father, we love you, and uh, we're thankful that you love us even when we don't feel love for you. And uh, your love is consistent, and when we break our promises to you, you never, ever break your promise to us, and we thank you for that. And, Lord Jesus, this morning we take some time out to, uh, to pray for the Mosaic Center and ask you to bless them. We pray, uh, Father, for Donna as she leads this ministry, her executive board, uh, her staff, uh, as, as well as the ladies that are, in the, um, that are in the program, Father. We pray that your spirit would hover above all of them. And uh, sometimes we forget, Lord, that you don't, you don't love the needy and the unevangelized more than you love the ministers. And uh, there's a lot of folks involved in ministry in that organization. And I pray for them this morning that you would love on them, that you would give them encouragement, that you would keep them focused on their task and not let them be distracted by, uh, by other noise that is out there. We pray you would bless their efforts and that many would come to know you, many more, and that others would be discipled. Father, I thank you for the privilege we have as a church in a couple of weeks to actually uh, host the graduation of this class here and that we get to be a part of that, Father. Um, I pray for us as we move forward that you would draw us more to yourself, that you would help us to understand uh, just a little bit more what you're doing um, and how you're doing it, and we get to be a part of it, and I pray we would absolutely fall in love with you. Um, thank you again for gathering us today, and we pray that you would uh, bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, real quick, one more announcement. Um, we're having a another worship night next Sunday night. Um, so if you guys haven't been, uh, you should come out. It's fun. We uh, we just get in here and we we just sing really loud for about an hour. And so uh, again, there's no preaching. <laughs> yeah, we just we just really we just sing for an hour and uh, it's a good time. So if you haven't been, you guys should come. Uh, it's next Sunday at six o'clock. Okay. Oh, I heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like but i've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night and you tell me that you're pleased and that i'm never alone you're a good good father it's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am. Oh, and I've seen many searching for answers far and wide, but I It's who you are. It's who you are. 
steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. shelter in you my God and then you give me rest you are my refuge and my safe place my strength is in your name and though I stumble I never will fall you hold me and you direct my every step. You hold me in your hand. 
seated. Can we uh, take a second? I know the kids are leaving now. Can we take a second and pray? Would you just take a moment and ask God to speak to you, you personally this morning? Father, I ask that uh, your Holy Spirit that lives within your children would uh, truly talk. This is a tough text. 
it is, uh, I know that there will be those in this room and watching on the internet. I even can probably name a few that are not going to like what your word says. But Father, whether they like what I say or not, what matters is what you say, and so I pray that you would rule this, this morning and this time. Uh, family, I'd just like you to ask you to pray for me this morning as I open this word, that I would be accurate to Scripture. Just in your heart, will you pray for me this morning? Pray that I will not preach what my flesh says, but what the word says. And I pray, Father, now for those who will be listening, that it will be your word that is retained, does not return void, not my opinions or my cute little quips. Uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> this uh, morning's text is a tough one because... Um, Probably because of our, our uh, evangelistic upbringing and our DNA. Uh, and uh, some of these verses that I'm going to share with you this morning are going to set off synapses in your heart and your brain. And I'm going to ask you this morning to discipline your emotions and simply watch the word. Uh, I'm going to be more careful today than usual. Some of you will breathe a sigh of relief. Because uh, at the end of today, I know that there will be those who do not like what it says, and therefore, I want to be able to simply say, your problem is not with me, it's with the Word. Uh, for those of you who would like to email me and tell me that I hide behind the Bible, I would like to say, now you're understanding. That's exactly what I do. Um, let me begin by saying that when we come to a difficult text like James chapter 2, it is really, really important that we understand that these verses that are difficult for us inside of a chapter are not written in a vacuum. They're written in a context. And uh, the, your job is, as a child of God is really not simply to memorize a verse here and there as we did when we were children, but actually to understand what God says about himself through the scriptures. And the Holy Spirit, as we talked about two weeks ago, who lives within you, that is the word of God implanted in you, as I understand it, he speaks, he guides, he directs, and he moves in your heart. He takes these things written thousands of years ago and he applies them to you and you go, whoa, I never saw that before. It is amazing and it is everyone in this room's experience that you have read a text five million times and all of a sudden one time you read it again and it's like, wow, why didn't I see that before? That's because God illuminates through his spirit different things to you at different times. Before I jump into what I want to share with you this morning or what I believe the Lord has for us today, I just want to warn you, if you're not God's kid, if you're in journey trying to figure this out, this is not for you. The book of James was a letter written to Jews that were Christians that were scattered throughout the world, and it was written to Christians. And so as I work through this text, you can hate what I teach, you can hate what it says, but it really is none of your business. That's like you deciding you don't like the color I painted my house. It may offend you, but it's none of your business. It's my house. And... This is family time, and we're glad you're here, and we're glad you're watching on the internet, but the things that are taught here this morning really aren't to you, not written to you, they're not applicable to you. The only thing you need to worry about is who's going to deal with your sin. Is it you or Jesus? That's your choice. So having said that, grab your Bibles, uh, and, and uh, we'll be in James 2 in a second. I'm going to take you some other places first because when you're studying a scripture, especially one that's difficult, you start with the passage you're studying, and it's like, whoa, that verse doesn't fit with what I thought was true about God or man or whatever. And the first thing you don't do 
although most of us do it, is call your pastor. Because you have the same Holy Spirit your pastor does. The second thing you don't do is pick up a commentary. Because you have the same Holy Spirit that a commentary has. Or the person who wrote it. The next thing you do is quit being lazy. And you breathe, and you read the chapter it's written in. And when you read that chapter, you're going to go, well, how does that fit into the chapter? That's the right question. And then you don't be lazy. You take a breath, and you read it within the book it's written in. Well, what if it's the book of Revelation? Do it again. Read it. How badly do you want to know? You see, you're used to, we have trained you, like Pavlov's dogs, to get an answer in 30 seconds by Googling eternal security. And then you find whoever says what agrees with your theology, and you go, well, Frank Smith says... I got news for you. It's not what Frank Smith says that matters. It's what God says that matters because he's the judge. When you get into a book that says something like James that that confuses maybe the message of grace as you understood it, too often we just go, well, I just don't like James, so I stay out of it. That is lazy too. Because if this book is going to be in the canon, if it's going to be in our Bibles, it has to fit with Romans. If it doesn't fit with Romans, it shouldn't be in there. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons I wanted to preach James. Because it feels like the opposite of Romans, but it's not. They fit together. Or maybe we should reevaluate whether there should be 66 books in this book. But it does fit. And so it's next, once you get through a book that contains a section, that contains a verse that doesn't make sense to you, you can't be lazy. You've got to read it in light of what else it says under that covenant, the New Covenant or New Testament or the Old Testament. Because if you keep backing up and you keep reading, eventually you're going to get an answer to your question if, in fact, there is one. You'll get an answer to your question. But you have to be students of the word. The scripture is clear that we should study to show ourselves approved, workmen who need not to be embarrassed. And the truth is, I listen to a lot of preaching, and I color a lot of books. That was a joke. Um, And it is amazing to me how much we have out there as evangelicals today that is written as solid biblical theology that has no framework within the context of the scriptures. And that's dangerous. And what's even more dangerous than it's being written and sold in the millions is that people read it and they're comforted by it when it doesn't match the scripture. You must know the scriptures, which is why we go verse by verse. Because you have every right to disagree with anything I say. I encourage it, in fact, and I've told you before that if, I, if, I'm, if you can show me from Scripture where I'm misunderstanding something, that I'll get up the next week and I'll share, I'll share it with the church. And I have done that on a couple occasions. Um, found out later that I was right and you were wrong, but nonetheless, I didn't brag. I'm kidding. The truth is I'm wrong about some stuff. I don't want to be wrong. I, you don't want to be wrong, but I'm wrong about some stuff. And it's your job to keep me accountable. Um, my email is jeff at cwbc.org. <laughs> But it is, it is your responsibility to hold me into account. Uh, on the other hand, just because you don't like how something sounds doesn't make it untrue. You with me? Today is big boys and girls. So this morning I wanted to begin by taking you through Scripture because our understanding of James 2 is greatly helped if we first understand what the New Testament says about how a person knows if they're saved versus how they know if they're not. And let me start by saying that we live in a culture, and you know this, that's very evangelistic, rally-oriented, and this culture especially, we throw sawdust on the floor, we put a tent up 100 years ago, we do a rally, we call it a revival, and we try to get people saved. 
And so everything is done in a nutshell. At the end of a great message, whether it's D.L. Moody or Billy Graham or the pastor, often we have people walk aisles and pray prayers, and then they meet with the counselor, and in some more organized setting, we actually write on a piece of paper that they accepted Christ and who the counselor was, and we prayed together, and then we hand them that sheet, one copy of it, another copy goes to the office so we can follow up, and then they put it in the back of their Bible. And why do they put it in the back of their Bible? Because we tell them that whenever you doubt your salvation, whenever you struggle, then you can go to that, and that will remind you of the assurance of the day you were saved. That's fine, it's just not biblical. That's the problem. The Bible never says that you need a videotape of your baptism to prove your salvation. In heaven, God will never take a, uh, take a picture of a service where you responded and go, oh, okay, here it is. Actually, it tells us how we can know if we're saved. And again, I want to remind you that, that James 2 is talking to believers However, I want to show you in the New Testament what it says. Actually, in Romans 8, we're going to start there. It offers a fairly complete picture of a saved person. And we're going to be in a lot of scripture. So if you don't know the New Testament, you can watch it on the screen, write it down, check it later. But he starts Romans 8 by saying, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, so even, even Paul is writing to believers here. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin. That leads to death, which is really why most of us get saved in the first place. Death, condemnation, separation from God, hell. Whatever happens 30 seconds after you die for an unbeliever who dies in their sins, we're avoiding that. Proverbs talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's why we get saved. But this explains to us what happens to me at the moment of my salvation at the second. It says that I was freed from its power of sin to condemn or kill me. So the power of sin to send me eternally apart from God to be judged by God is dealt with at the moment of my salvation. How did this happen? Verse 3 of Romans 8. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us. Wow, that's cool. God declared sin no longer has control over us <clears throat> by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this, <clears throat> excuse me, he did this so that, and whenever you have a so that, you need, to, you need to take a breath because he's about to tell you why God did what he did. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who are, and who are us, those who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So what does this mean in our lives? Verse 5, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. <clears throat> so letting the, the, the sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your minds leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. So I struggle with sin. That's what he's talking about. My battle with the flesh and sin is going to be ongoing. That's why, we are uh, that's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. So what about the believer's life? Verse 9. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. That's very important. If you have the Spirit of God living within you, you're not controlled by your flesh. And remember, this is very important, that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ in, in, in them do not belong to Him at all. So according to God, it's not that you walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or were baptized that you're saved. In eternity, you're going to exchange the Holy Spirit for eternal life. That's what God looks at. 
God does not look at whether you're, where your church membership is or how often you go to church. God looks at whether or not the Holy Spirit is in you. I know that's ridiculous because God is the Holy Spirit, but you know what I'm saying. That's the difference between a saved person and an unsaved person. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit will give you life because you have been made right with God, a declaration. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Now take a breath because it's really important you understand that last sentence. That's one of those sentences that goes, that's theological mumbo jumbo. Thank you, God, for resurrecting my body and not condemning me. I want to give you a warning, and I'm going to say this two or three times during the service. I believe that for most of us, we were saved from hell without, and not saved from sin. Most of us went to a, an event or an activity where the preacher effectively basically scared the hell out of us. And we, in return, did whatever they told us to do so we don't go to hell. The effect of that has been that we go on living in sin because we don't see sin as the problem. I mean, we kind of see sin as the problem because sin is the thing that leads to hell. But gosh, now that hell's not a problem, I really don't mind my sin. I kind of like my sin, so I'm going to live in my sin. So thank God for grace and mercy, but I'm going to live any way I want because basically I'm saved from hell, which is the only problem I think I have in the first place. How can I make that statement? Because that's what we see all around us. Christians who live for themselves but do it with a fish tattooed on their rear end as if that saves them. I mean, the truth is, it's just told us that, that, that the same spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ give life to your mortal, sinful, fleshly, still condemned bodies. And by the way, your skin is still condemned. That's why when you die, it's left behind. Romans 5 says that. The reason you die as a child of God declared right with him is because your flesh is still under condemnation. But, but what we just read is, at the moment of your salvation, the Holy Spirit comes into you, lives inside of you, gives life to this fleshly body. It begins to be transformed. Even my flesh begins to be transformed. So please take note, that it said nothing of being baptized or water or walking an aisle or praying a sinner's prayer. That, that evangelistic rally kind of teaching has merit, but just understand that just because at seven years of age you were at VBS and you prayed the prayer, raised your hand, that's not how God's going to judge your eternal position. It's whether or not the Holy Spirit is within you. So look at Romans 8, 9. Very clearly, remember that those, do not have, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them, no matter how religious, I'm going to add that, do not belong to him at all. According to this verse, the difference between a saved person or a spiritual child of God and a lost person still under God's wrath is not how religious they are, ask the Jews, because they're not all saved. But it is whether or not the Spirit of God lives within them. This is completely consistent with other New Testament teachings. For instance, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 on the screen. When you believed in Christ... He what? What's that word? Identified you as his own. Take a deep breath. That's not complicated. How does God identify you as his own? Well, you walk in, I'll pray a prayer, and the pastor writes down a little response card, and he hands it to you. That's how God identifies you as his own? No. Does he identify you as his own by how wet you are? No. He identifies you as his own by the Holy Spirit he gave you at the moment of salvation, whom he promised long ago. Look at the Old Testament. He's always promising. Jesus said, I have to leave so somebody greater than me can come. The Holy Spirit is, verse 14, the Holy Spirit is God's, what's the word? Guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. 
So not only is the Holy Spirit the thing God gives immediately, one of his jobs is to identify me as his child, but the second thing he does is he's like a ticket into heaven. I want my ticket into heaven. Well, what is the ticket into heaven? It's the Holy Spirit. It's not your prayer card. It's not your baptism certificate. It's not your church membership. It's not your circumcision papers or the pictures thereof. It's the Holy Spirit. Very clear. Once again, that is the evidence that you are God's child, not a video of you walking an aisle. In the evangelical church, we usually ask if a person has walked an aisle, prayed the sinner's prayer, been baptized, or where they go to church to find out if they're saved. Why those, while those may be helpful, significant questions, it really doesn't answer the question. The New Testament actually goes beyond this to say how you and I can practically see for ourselves whether or not the Holy Spirit lives within us or somebody else. Open Galatians 5. Look what Galatians 5 says to us. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what the sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. After the Spirit, and the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. He's writing to believers here. So there's a battle that goes on every day between our flesh and what we know to be right. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are clear. So this is not warning you not to do these things. It's telling you to look in the mirror. It's clear to know who runs your life. And here's how you know if it's not God, if it's your nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, Hostility, which none of us do any of these, but we do do these. I'm kidding. Quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. So if you want to know this morning, if you're being led by the Holy Spirit, look at your last week. Does it fall under those categories? Let me tell you again, Paul says, as I have before, that anyone living this sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. <gasps> he just said that my flesh is, not under con is under conflict with these things, so I do struggle with these things. Now he's telling me if I do those things that, that I'm going to hell? That's not what he said. He said if that is your lifestyle, if that's your pattern of life, if there's no battle, if you're not in a fleshly battle, then you have reason to believe you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Why? I'm glad you asked. Verse 22, but the Holy Spirit, the very next verse, produces, you know what the word produces means? This is not how you get it, this is how you know it. So look in the mirror. This is the kind of fruit that the Holy Spirit, who we just learned is given to you as the identifying mark, the moment of salvation. So for every child of God, at the moment you accept Jesus Christ to forgive your sin, by walking an aisle, by praying a prayer, by believing, however you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit is given to you at that instance. Well, okay, how do I know if he's there? This is the answer to that question. He produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. You see, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there. Do you know why the person who's a child of God have done that? 
Because the person who's truly a child of God did not get saved from hell, but they got saved from a poison called sin. And they found out that the antidote to that poison and the death that comes because of that poison is Jesus Christ. And that's why in Romans it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The fact is that you are not saved by doing good works. But this salvation, under the power of the Holy Spirit, who is given to us at the moment we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and the moment we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, the instant he is given to us, that, that second we accept his offer to forgive our sins, we begin a process of even our flesh being changed. It cannot not happen. Or he's not there. It's a production. It's the result of. With that understanding, now we enter James chapter 1. Or 2, not 1. We've, we've been at 1. James chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. My dear brothers and sisters, take a deep breath and make an observation. Who is he writing to? Believers. How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? I want to remind you that James is writing his letter to deal with a genuine concern he has as a leader of the mother church in Jerusalem that, the, that these Jews believe, these Jewish believers, these people that are spread out throughout the globe, their focus, their vision has become divided between God and feeding their flesh. Not necessarily sinfulness, but just believing they deserve a certain level of life, a certain level of comfort. They have, they have a divided loyalty that he is addressing throughout this. And in this letter, up to what we've studied, he's given examples from things he's obviously heard or seen to show these folks that they're not putting all of their hope in God. They want the joy of the Lord, but they want the joy of life as well. So they go to God for understanding, and they pray, and he warns them. When you pray, the reason you don't have answers is because you're praying for what you want, not God's will. You see, even in the church we do that. We go through a time where we're struggling emotionally or we're struggling physiologically or we're struggling even spiritually. And instead of resting on his grace, we go to God and we go, God, take this darkness from me without any thought that maybe it is in your weakness he is made strong. What if God wanted Elijah to be a depressed individual? Well, why would God want that? I don't know, but what if he does? What if God doesn't take... Um, we talk about being men and women of courage in Joshua chapter 1. It's like seven, six or seven times God sends people to Joshua, who is going to be the new leader of the nation of Israel, to tell, the, tell him, be strong and courageous. God tells him. His prophet tells him. The elders of Jerusalem tell him. And then the nation as a whole and his coronation says, be courageous. Do you know why Joshua needed to be told over and over again to be a man of courage? Because he was scared to death. We, we not only want to be courageous believers, we want to feel good in the courage. We actually believe that the trials and tribulations of life, if we're walking with God, will come, but we will feel good about them. And I got news for you. It's never going to feel good when you're diagnosed with terminal cancer. It's unrealistic. But what we have done in the church today is we have rewritten theology so that not only do we love God, but we can have a good life too. You can have your best life right now. As opposed to what? Later? Which is, ironically, diametrically opposed to what Peter and Paul taught. I don't know where Mary was. <laughs> that was a music joke. 
James 1 or 2, I keep saying 1, it's chapter 2, verse 1. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? He's using examples of everyday life where they're falling and struggling to point out that they're divided. He's making a case. This text, chapter 2, is not merely about favoring one person over another or prejudices, but actually the spiritual crisis he's addressing in the whole letter. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? I want you to listen. Look at what he writes here. For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who's poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over here or sit in the balcony maybe. Or there's a church down the street for your kind. I added those last two. You can stand over there or you can sit on the floor. Well, doesn't that discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? My goodness, how did our grandparents get away with what we did to people of color? How do you read this and not walk away and go, oh, maybe we're wrong? Does this not describe the South 40 years ago? Sorry. You know what? Just so you know, there's two people that nodded, and the rest of you are going, can he touch that? I just want you to know that not touching it doesn't make it more true or less true. It's time for the church. We want politicians to be honest. Well, it's time for us to start. Because you know what's cool about our honesty? What's really cool about our honesty is it is bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ and there is no eternal consequences for it. If the church genuinely loved the sinner and hated the sin, there would be no vocational opportunities in AIDS clinics. They would be filled with born-again believers, missionaries to people of a different sexual orientation. I would argue that we not only hate the sin, we don't even like the sinner if they don't sin the way we think they should sin. Like, for instance, fat. We're okay with fat. It's kind of cute. Chubby people are fun. Gay people are disgusting. We're disgusting to God. This isn't about how you feel about people. This is about how God feels about people. But I argue again I, I, that when most of, most of us got saved, we wanted life and God. And we came to God because we were promised by good-meaning preachers or deceitful preachers you can choose who told us that God would make our marriage better. Forgetting that Jesus said, I came with a sword to divide husband and wife and father and child. You see, the problem with the truth is people don't like truth. Really, really don't like truth. And we, our flesh, wants to surround ourselves with comfortable things so that we can live for God in our comfort. We want to go to India for two weeks, but we don't want to stay. We don't mind taking hot dogs to the north side of Lovekin, but I don't want to move there. Even shoes sometimes of the year. But I really, really don't want to mingle because that's not my mission field. Now, for a lot of you, that's like, that's not a problem. I know Carpenter's Way. I know your heart. What about hanging out with some rich folks who are going to hell? How about actually going to a wine and cheese tasting thing and going there with the sole purpose of offering hope to people whose hope is found in things that will be swallowed and spent and taxed? You see, the thing is that we keep serving in our comfort zone, and he's addressing that. Verse 5, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith 
And, and, and aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal, uh, the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. Ouch. I don't like James any more than you do. Mr. James Jacob Joshua, whatever your real name is. He's not none, unfortunately. For the person who keeps all of the law except one is as guilty as breaking all of God's laws. Well, I don't understand it, Pastor. If this is written to believers, why is he writing like this? Because you hear all the time Christians today, just like back then, going, you know what? I may not like Gentiles, but I have never committed adultery. I may not like those people over there. What is it? Pants on the ground, pants on the ground. I don't like that group, and I know that's probably wrong, but God's just going to have to deal with it. Or how about an attitude? I know that I probably rub people wrong, but that's just how I'm made. They're going to have to get over it. But I would never, ever drink. Good for you. You should start. You'll be much more fun to be around. <laughs> Write that down, Julie. Look, I want to take a breath because all of us in this room are in the same place. I'm not going you, I'm going us. We have a problem. We have effectively married Christianity with our flesh. And here's the good news. It's always been that way. Listen to James. He's not going, you guys are going to hell. He's going, you claim to be walking with God and in fellowship. You claim to be spiritually healthy. And look at these blind spots. You, 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 you are mad when God sends trouble your way or when you experience it. You should ask God. And by the way, when you ask God, you better ask for what he wants, not what you want. Why? Because your loyalty is divided. And then he starts chapter, uh, the end of that chapter and he says, hey, you get mad at people. You need, to, you need to listen to God in you more and talk less. My gosh, wouldn't that be great for the church to shut up for five minutes? Why are we on Fox News telling people that they're going to hell because they're gay? They're going to hell because their sin hasn't been dealt with, whether it's gay or overeating. Jesus Christ came to give us a message, and he's not counting your sins against you. I can tell you why we're mad. It's not because of their sin. It's because they're making us uncomfortable. And how dare you come into my country and treat us like this? Our country was founded on biblical principles and the Judeo-Christian ethic by godly men. Blah, 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 blah. And you're kind of like, would you just shut up for five minutes? Half of that isn't true. It isn't true. It was founded by men who were deists, who believed in God but rejected Jesus. And there is no salvation because of moral morality. There is salvation in Jesus alone. And I understand that it is uncomfortable to be asked to serve in a world that does not reflect our value system and may, in fact, want to hurt us. But welcome to life in 2016. And I've got news for you. It ain't going to get better. Read the end of the book. Revelation says some of you will be thrown in prison and some of you will be killed. And you know what the encouragement from Jesus on high is? Hang in there, I'll see you soon. Well, that isn't fair. You know what's not fair? Jesus, the perfect God-man, being put on a cross, stripped naked. And by the way, we whitewashed that story. He hung naked and they made fun of his manliness. And why did they do that? Because he loved you more than he loved 
judgment. This week, some of us were on the internet listening to somebody in this community talk about how God hates sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The verse before that says, this is love. We, we, we have no clue how much God loved us. And then we get saved from hell and we go, whew, glad that's over with. Now don't cut me off in traffic. Well, if we allow people to keep cutting people off in traffic, Mark, do you know what's going to happen? I've been to India. I know what happens. <laughs> but the thing is, even in India, people need Jesus. Maybe we should spend less time trying to save a country that we know is going to end badly and tell people that there's hope in Jesus Christ alone. But to tell them that, we have to believe it. We've got to believe it. And the problem is, in this case, he's making a case that we don't believe it. Even in our worship times, you've got rich people being honored and poor people being told, sit over there. We've got a, we've got a new carpet over there for, for people of your kind, and we can wash it after. We've even got so involved in ministry to stinky poor people that we have six women every Monday that come up and wash the carpet that your dirty butt's going to be sitting on. And five people come up after the service and say, you know what, Pastor, I'd like to give to that ministry. Because I think we need a dirty people ministry. It's great that we welcome those people. And we go out in the community and we say, you know, our church welcomes dirty, stinky, poor people. Yes, we do. We sit them in their upper right front so that everybody can see the stinky, dirty, poor people. <laughs> think about what we do. You're like, I've never been to a church like that. Okay, okay well, all right, I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 10. For the person... For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is guilty as a person who's broken all of the laws. For the, verse 11, for the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but don't commit adultery, you've still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. That's a weird statement. You might want to study that because I'm not going to explain it to you. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will, show, uh, will be merciful when he judges you. Here's the point, verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters? This is the second time in this tough text where he's identified his readers as believers. See, you can lose your salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, wake up. Identify, look in the mirror. What are you doing in the name of Jesus? What good is it? If you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions, can that faith save anyone? It's like having a lawnmower with no blade. I bought myself a new lawnmower. It's got 600 horses of mean chopping power. You want to come over and see it? Yes, I do. And then we'll go fishing after. Hey, Mark, there's no blade on it. I know, but ain't it pretty? Doesn't it make noise? The church has 600 horsepower of bladeless Christianity because we don't live what we celebrate. You see, it's not just true for them, it's true for us. But the only way we experience that truth is when we wholeheartedly go, I'm buying in even if it kills me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before the great Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, who can save you from my hand? What God can save you? And they say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to save us from your hand. Remember the next line? But even if he chooses not to, we will not bow. That is believing 
what you believe. That kind of faith is the Nest Plunge faith. That says, yet he slay me, still will I serve him. It's Joel, uh, jo- Joel, 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 we'll just make some up. It's a Job who says, all I know is that my Redeemer lives and one day he'll walk upon the earth. It's Peter, or it's Paul, or Paul who says, you know, it would be better for me to die and go home, but for your sakes, I need to stay. I'm shipwrecked, I'm poor. And he writes to the church of Corinth that is this kind of church that's neck deep in their flesh, and he goes, you guys should give up all your wealth and come join us out here where it's fun. We're being beaten up, we're being shipwrecked, we're in abjunct poverty. You need to give, give that up and walk away and come join us in this. Okay, sign up. We should do evangelism based on this. Let's walk the streets. Here's the point. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Now, now please pay attention again. He is not threatening their salvation. He calls them brothers again. He's simply making a big, huge, fat, consistent New Testament point that you are not saved by works, but this salvation definitely does work on you. It changes you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes in. And this conversation in the book of James, not a threat. It's like the conversation I had when my kids were young and growing older. I understand, Zach and Anna, that you're pastor's kids. To be honest with you, I can do something else, so I'm not worried about that. So I'm not ever going to say to you, don't act like that. That's not how pastor's kids act. I'm going to tell you, don't act like that, because that's not how Wilkie's act. Yeah, but I want to express myself. Do it on your own time after 18. But until then... Everything dries up if you start acting like a non-Wilkie. The fact is, there are responsibilities with the name Wilkie. And there's responsibilities with the name child of God. You're not going to be cast out if you don't do it, but you will be miserable. Because the Holy Spirit living within you is going to squeeze your left aorta and go, you know who the most miserable person is? In a strip joint is the Baptist who's not drunk. So you add a little alcohol and you start numbing the pain. That to me, my friends, is the word of God in you going, what are we doing? And for some, most of you, it's like, I've never been to a strip joint. Good. Well, how about when you tell somebody off, you know you shouldn't, or you get mad and you go off, and the Holy Spirit, the word in you is going, what are you doing? You see, this all fits together. And then he goes on in the next verse of last week's text, the end of one, and he says, don't just be hearers of the word. I heard you, Lord. Then do something about it. I mean, you didn't raise your kids like that. If you've got a little boy and you want to teach him how to work with tools, you don't just show him a screwdriver. This is a flathead. This is a Phillips screwdriver. And yes, I do know what tools look like. I colored a book last week, Tools for Men. (laughs) You've got a flathead and you've got a Phillips, and you don't go, this is a Phillips and this is a flathead. All right, end of lesson. Let's have cookies. You take them out, you give them a screw on a two-by-four, and you teach them how to screw it in. That's what you do. Why? Because you want them to use it. So that when they're older, they can use a flathead or a Phillips screwdriver. Well, you know, the reason God gave you the Holy Spirit and he gave you direction and guidance, the reason he planted him in you, the reason he speaks to you isn't so you can go, oh, 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 thank you, God. But so that you can go, oh, okay, God, let's go. We're still in James chapter 2. Here's the point. 
If the difference between a saved and an unsaved person, according to God, is the presence of the Holy Spirit, and if there is, in fact, as Paul says in Galatians, fruit of his presence when he lives within us, then if he is present in us, which is the difference between a saved and an unsaved person, there is fruit, and how you treat people, especially people you think you're better than at, reflects whether or not you're following his lead. The reason we mistreat people that we disrespect or have fleshly disrespect, and by the way, let me also be clear on this. You're going to have prejudices. I don't care how many times you're screamed out about it. That's just part of life. You may not like people of certain color. You may not like people of certain upbringings. I tell you what, I, I mean, it's just how it is. That's just, I've talked to missionaries. They deal with it their whole lives, but we love them because God loves them. We serve them because God serves them. And in time, guess what happens? You fall in love with them because you can't hate somebody you're praying for, including your ex-spouse who had multiple affairs. I hate him. Do you pray for him? You see, there's something more important than your marriage, and that's their eternal destiny. I want him to go to hell. That's because you're not filled with the Spirit. You're living for the flesh. Well, I'm saved. Different question. How's that working for you? I'm not very happy. You know why? Because you don't see people as God sees people. And you don't even care to. I've had multiple people at Carpenter's Way because I started, I shared this on Wednesday night last week, I started when I came to Carpenter's Way, the county was going from moist to dry, or to wet, I mean. And uh, I talked a lot about alcohol at first. And then when that got over and people were fine with drinking, then, which they were already doing as long as they paid $2 at Applebee's to join the club, which is really kind of weird. But then we moved on to homosexuality, and I will move off of homosexuality when the church got, finally wraps her eyes and mind around the fact that gays were on Jesus' mind when he died on the cross too. He loves them. How could he love them? And some of you like to remind me that you understand that that's true, but you will never serve them. Okay. Just so you know, you're not walking in the Spirit. And if you want to know why you're miserable, it's because you're fighting the one that lives within you that empowers you to joy. Joy is not the absence of pain or the absence of sadness. It's overwhelming joy in the midst of sadness and pain. That's the irony of God's power. The resurrection is living when you've died. We've, we've turned this into a human scientific equation, a behavioral modification study. It's not. How does a depressed person have joy when they're depressed? The Holy Spirit does it however he wants. Walk with him. I want the abundant life Jesus promised. That doesn't mean the rich life or the better job. It means an abundant life where you see God working in and around you, where there's hope that, he, that I can't even define because it comes from the inner man. This is real and he's living within you. James isn't done. Because it's not about discrimination. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my dear brothers and sisters, if you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can this kind of faith save anyone? Verse 13. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat, but you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good is that? <laughs> I don't like that verse either. Let's move on. Verse 17. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. I thought you said it was salvation through faith in Christ alone. I did, and I still stand by that. Pay attention. Faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Please notice that the word there is produces. I looked at the Greek. Guess what it means? Produces, grows out of, comes from, organic, naturally grows out of. You see, this really changes you. 
It really, really changes you. James' point is, saving faith produces or naturally grows a changed life. In other words, he's not saying that you better treat people better in order to be saved, or you better stop telling people off, but rather, just because you claim to be saved, because you have faith, if that faith doesn't change the way you look at people and treat people and see life, it's useless. It's like saying you have a pink butterfly living in your heart. He's not done. Verse 18. Now someone may argue. Some people. I can, I can hear this. Some people have faith. Others have deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. This is just an argument. He's making a case. These people are pushing back like we would. Well, be careful, James. Be careful because it sounds an awful lot like you're saying we get saved by our works. He's saying, no, I'm not saying that. But you're telling me that your salvation doesn't work in your life. That's nuts. What good is something that has no change or effect on you? I'm telling you, you may say that you have faith, more faith because it doesn't affect you, which is a ridiculous argument. I'm telling you that the faith that I have in God has so changed the way I look at life. It, it's working. It's effective. While it is true that you are saved by faith alone and you are free even to self-destruct, it is also true that if the Holy Spirit is in you, then you are impacted by his presence even in the process of self-destructing. If he's there, he's there. He doesn't leave, come and go like the old covenant. He's there. And his presence is evidenced. If you got saved at four at a VBS but nothing else has happened, you have every right to question your salvation. You should question your salvation. So I'm going to take you to a very, uh, we're, we're almost done. We're rounding second. So 1 John 4, I want, I want to show you something. I'm going to give you a modern example. Because in this, in this culture, in this country, in Western culture, some people claim to be the children of God and yet have ongoing disdain for his body. So this morning, some of you are going to struggle with this, but I simply want to read to you piece by piece, little by little, make some points, 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. So I'm going to pause there for a second, and I'm going to say he's telling you, not just for prophets or teachers, but when somebody says they're a believer, don't just believe them at face value. You must test them, the end of verse 1. You must test them to see if the Spirit comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. Ready for verse 2? This is how we know if they have the Spirit of God or are Christians, true children of God. Number 1. If a permanent person claiming to be a prophet, or we can add from God, acknowledges that Jesus came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. If someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth that Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. All right, way you know number one. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Anything less than the Messiah sent from God to save people from their sins, they are in effect an Antichrist. They're wrong. And they're not saved. For somebody to say, if I'm a Christian, but I reject Jesus Christ is to be a founder of the United States of America. By the way, I keep going back there because until some of you do your homework and actually study what they believed, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep sticking my finger in that hole because your ignorance is embarrassing. 
Benjamin Franklin, weeks before his death, wanted to emphasize he was not a follower of Jesus Christ. So he wrote letters for the sole purpose of saying, I am not a follower of Christ, and don't let anybody at my funeral tell you I am. Thomas Jefferson, who wrote most of those quotes, including the one on the dollar bill, actually rewrote the New Testament, removing Jesus Christ's supernatural acts or any self-claims that he was sent from Father. Thomas Jefferson is in hell. Well, how can you say that? Because this says that. Look, it's, it's, not, it's not hard. It's just judgmental. And you're told to judge. That's number one. Verse four, but you belong to God, my dear children, in 1 John 4. But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Those people belong to the world, so they speak from the world's viewpoint. And the world listens to them. But we belong to God. Reason number two, you can know if somebody's saved. And those who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they don't listen to us. That is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. John, an apostle, is saying, if they believe with us, they're children of God. If they reject our teaching, they're not. Uh, what does this mean in modern days since John will not walk in here and preach this morning? The scriptures. The scriptures tell you how to be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe with your mouth, or you confess with your mouth, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Any veering off of that, they're not Christians. That's number two. Verse seven. And dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Oh. There's a lot of people who think they're going to heaven, but don't act like it. So it's love, just loving people. That's the third signpost. God showed, verse 9, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Verse 13, and God has given us his spirit as proof, there it is again, What's the proof that we're saved? The Holy Spirit. As proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son into the world to be Savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God, living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we shall... Now get this. This is really cool. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment... I hope I'm saved, but we can face him with confidence. Why? Re reason number four, you know you're saved. Because we live like Jesus in the world. Did you know the New Testament tells you how to know if you're saved or not? Not just the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit's work in your life. There it is. This is how we can have confidence. Chapter, uh, chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 18. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels our fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And that shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Here we go. Fifth reason. Fifth evidence. Verse 19. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command, those who love God, must love their fellow believers. Five evidences for a true child of God who has a spirit living within them. Well, I, I, don't, I, I don't like those. This is what it is. What do they believe about Jesus? 
What do they do with the scriptures and the things taught within the scriptures? How do we treat other people? How do we treat the church? We live in a culture that has kind of a, actually a time where people are like, I don't need other believers. I love God, but I don't like his kids. You now have a problem with 1 John, and some of you are giggling because you've heard that. You see, coming together, whether it's here or in other places, is not about you. It's about the person next to you. And when people say, I don't need them, they've never even thought for a second that it wasn't about what they needed, it's about what others needed. You see, the reason we gather is so we can serve each other. But the church is constantly serving itself. We don't like gays. We don't like these people. We don't like that. They make us uncomfortable. The country is falling apart. And all we talk about is what we all agree in. Some churches talk about pro-life every Sunday. 98% of us in this room agree on pro-life. That's why I don't talk about it much. There's nothing there. We all kind of agree. Let's move on to stuff we struggle with. Because that's what God is working and he's changing and transforming us. Back to James 2, 18 through 20. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith? Okay, take a breath. You say you have faith? For you believe that there's one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe this and tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Let me go a step farther than this. This isn't just about God being one, the Trinity, let me go farther and say, you know who believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Lucifer and his demons. You know why they know? They were there. Doesn't make them believers. You see, this is a transforming faith. If you confess that Jesus is, oh, I forgot that. I believe, but I believe that God raised him from the dead. It's not an ascension to historical fact. It's a surrendering of your life. It's saying, I'm in trouble. This takes me back to the whole, what were you saved from, hell or sin? It takes us back to that. Because if you're just saved from hell, it's not about who's in charge. It's not about a desperate attempt to be changed because sin is killing you. It's just a, it's just a desire not to go to hell. And when you go to God and you realize that sin is the problem and hell is the consequence or judgment, you go to him and you go, I just need your help. I need you to save me. And then you're set free and you want to walk with the one who set you free. That's, be, that's about being a bondservant. The more you know, the more you love, and the more you love, the more you walk like him. And all of a sudden, sin isn't the thing you worry about. You just want to be like him. I want to know you better, and I want other people to know. It changes you from the inside out. James 2. I'm going to read the whole thing to you. You ready? My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you say, favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes. Stick with me, I'm almost done. We'll be done in two minutes. For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to a rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't that discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Such a good question, you guys. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law found, as found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. 
For the person who keeps all the law except one is guilty as a person who has broken all the, of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but don't commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. That is not a threat, by the way. It's a fact. If you don't show mercy to others, you don't have God living in you. That's a character of God, and if he's there, it affects you. But if you have been merciful, God will show mercy when he judges. You know why? Because you can't show mercy in your own flesh. That's a God act. It's a supernatural gift. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but you don't give that person food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Now, somebody may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe that there's one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is, is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Please note that it doesn't say was made right with God, but shown to be right with God. You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as Scripture said, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown evidence to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions, and she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so faith is dead without good works. You see, these good works James are referring to are the direct result from the simple fact that the Holy Spirit is living in you and working in you and transforming you. They are merely, as, as Chad teaches us all the time, they are merely the exhale of believers who have breathed in his grace and they are breathing out his praise as we literally worship God with our lives. And I know that this is a long message and this is a tough text. And some of you I've lost in the middle of this, but I want to bring you to one point right now, and this is very, very important. The application of this message is not for you to go out and perform good works. That would be salvation by works. The application of this message is a practical, simple one. If you find yourself on the wrong side of the evidence about salvation, I beg you to run back to God. Run back to God. Well, I've prayed the prayer. You tell him that, not me. What's wrong with me? Why am I not surrendered? Surrender control of your life to him. Let him do this work in you. This is not a list to check off. It's a mirror with which to check yourself out. And last week we learned that, that, that like guys, we have a tendency to look in the mirror and go, I'm not measuring up, <laughs> and move on. We need to be like women who look in the mirror and go, oh, I got lipstick on my tooth. We need to change. We need to step out and go, wow, thank you, God, for showing me that. And tell the waitress you were wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I treated you like that. That'll blow her mind. And you might even get to tell her why you're sorry. That, my friends, is what's going to affect the United States of America for Jesus Christ. Because we got a lot of Christians in Angelina County, but I'm afraid we don't have a lot of people who have the Holy Spirit living within them. 
You can be a Christian in this community without having a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, there's a lot of messages being preached that you can have God and the world. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus meant it when he said, pick up your cross and follow me. You want to know why those who believers who are believers are miserable? Because they've never surrendered control. And that's where the joy comes from. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. A long text, tough text. But your Holy Spirit's the one who makes the difference anyway, so I'm going to trust you in that. And I, I, I simply this morning as we wrap up pray for myself that, um, Lord, I don't measure up. I look at these things and I go, gosh, I'm prejudiced. And, and I... I I make decisions about people in the first 10 seconds and Lord, I'm disrespectful to folks and I don't love people like I should. I get mad when I watch the news. So I'm just coming to you today to say I, I realize that I am divided in my loyalty between you and the world and I ask you and your spirit that, that, that lives in me, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me cut away at that silly vision and help me to be fully invested in God's work in the world. Let me be like Jesus. And my family, help them be like Jesus. Help them want to be like Jesus. And for those who've been in the church their whole lives, and may be under conviction right now, realizing that they really don't know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Not walking an aisle and praying with a pastor, but getting on their knees and praying with the Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a great week. Next week it's a lot more fun.